Good morning. I'm glad everybody's here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Uh, let me pray for us uh, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for the good news that we've already heard that you have redeemed us um, according to your grace and your mercy and your love for us and that that never runs dry. I pray that we would have ears to hear uh, what you have to say to us this morning and uh, that we would hear and obey. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Genesis 14. Um, John Piper made a statement many years ago that shaped a generation. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you've been around Three Rivers for very long, you've heard the name Bob Roberts before. But Bob Roberts is the pastor of Northwood Church in Keller, Texas. Three Rivers was planted out of that church about 16 years ago. And he's still a mentor to the leadership of this church. And he recounts the story of one day wrestling with being discouraged during a season of transition for their church. Things had declined a little bit as they were implementing some changes. And Bob says that one Monday morning uh, he was particularly discouraged and he was praying and he had stepped out in his backyard. He was just kind of down about the attendance from the day before. And as he was praying and thinking, a question came into his mind that he hasn't been able to let go of to this day. And he said he heard the Lord say, Bob, when will Jesus be enough for you? So Three Rivers, let me ask you, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough for me? So if I were going to make one big overarching statement for Genesis chapter 14, it would be that the true blessing of victory for the believer comes in knowing God and not in our earthly possessions. Let me say that again. The true blessing for the believer is to know God, the originator of all of our blessings, and not in any earthly or worldly possession that we might have. So I'm going to give you a summary to kind of set the stage for where Genesis 14 is and summarize the first 10 verses of this for time's sake. Uh, and then we'll start reading in verse 11. Uh, in chapter 12, Abraham accumulates a lot of possessions when he sojourns in the land of Egypt because there's a famine in the land where he was dwelling. Abram there fails the test of faith, uh, but he accumulates many possessions. These possessions cause him many headaches, as we'll see, and as we saw in chapter 13, when Abram and Lot have to part ways because there's not enough room in the land for both of them and all of their stuff. Lot chooses to go um, to what appears to be the better land at first glance, and he goes towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram goes into Canaan, which is the promised land. Sometime later, a war breaks out between two different groups of kings uh, that had formed various alliances. And the group that included the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah is defeated. And their people and their possessions are captured and taken captive. And Lot is taken captive with that group because he dwells near the city of Sodom. So I'm going to pick up reading in Genesis 14, starting in verse 11. Genesis 14, 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with all of his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. So as we look into this passage, the first thing I want us to see is that these events in Abram's life are simple preparations for us, for Jesus. They point us to and prepare us for Christ. On this side of the cross, this side of redemptive history, we look back and we see how these things prepare us and how they were preparing the people of Israel for Jesus, the promised Messiah, to come. Abram serves as the man of faith who points us to the object of our faith. So in chapter 12, verse 3, God made this promise to Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And another way that's often phrased is those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. We see the outworking of that promise in Genesis chapter 14. Lot, Abram's nephew, is captured, and he's uh, taken into captivity with all that he possesses. He's caught up in this conflict that involves the city of Sodom. And even though Lot had separated from Abram, he was still his family. Someone escapes from this battle. He goes and he finds Abram, and he tells him that Lot's been taken captive. Notice that Abram's concern is not for fame. It's not for fortune. It's not even a concern for Sodom. He's not looking to get involved in international conflicts and become a conqueror. His concern is for his family. It's for Lot. So Abram rallies his forces, and they go and track down Keterlaomer and his forces, and they attack them by night in a surprise attack, and they rescue Lot. They also rescue all the possessions that were taken and all the peoples that were taken captive. So as Moses is writing this to the people of Israel, as they prepare to enter the promised land, one of the important things that he wants them to remember is that God is faithful to keep his promises. God gave Abram the victory, keeping this promise to curse those who curse Abram. If you read on further in the Bible at the end of the book of Joshua, the people are reminded that not one of the good promises that the Lord had made had failed. And Paul tells the church in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. Abram expresses faith in God to keep his word. Jesus tells us that we are to live by the word. When Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, he tells Satan that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Next, we see that it, just like it was costly for Abram to go and rescue Lot, it would be costly for God to rescue us. When Abram was taken, when Lot was taken captive, excuse me, Abram didn't sit around and think, well, Lot got what he deserved. He should have chosen a better place to go. He shouldn't have gone near that wicked city. This isn't really any of my business. I'm just going to sit back and relax. No, instead, Abram springs into action, taking on the risk of battle in order to rescue his family. Similarly, Christ didn't wait around for us to deserve being saved. He didn't sit back and tell us that we get what we deserve for rebelling and being disobedient. 
Christ left heaven, came to earth, lived as a man, didn't use the full privileges of being God to his advantage. He lived a perfect life of faith and obedience that we fail at, and he died the death that we all deserve to die. And then three days later, he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Just as it was costly for Abram to take steps of faith to rescue Lot, it was costly for Jesus to leave heaven to rescue us. In verses 19 through 20, we're reminded that this is really God's story. It's a story about God. It's not a story about Abram. I want to read verses 19 and 20 again. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God's the hero of this story. We see that in Melchizedek's blessing, and we see it in Abram's response. Four or five armies couldn't win this battle, and yet Abram, with his trained men from his house, they go, they track them down, and they take them down. But Abram's not the hero of this story. God is. And that's why his response to the priest of God Most High is to worship. That's why his response is to give him a tithe, a tenth of everything. Abram knew that it wasn't in his power that this battle was won. So Abram doesn't boast, hey, look at me, look at what I've done, give me this reward, I'm going to keep all this stuff for myself, I've earned it. We actually see that he basically tells the king of Sodom, you can keep all your stuff. I don't really want you to be able to boast that you're the one who made me rich. And I don't want people to say I'm rich because I'm a conqueror. Instead, his motivation is for people to know that God had blessed him and had provided everything that he needed. So God gets the glory, not Abram. And that's why he gave 10% as an act of worship. It all belonged to God anyway. And God had given him all that he needed and then some. The next thing we see is that Abram waited for the blessing on God's terms. Just like Jesus didn't force his way but submitted to the will of the Father. Abram really has the chance here to take the promised land by force. Right? God promised him this land where he was dwelling. And he goes and he defeats this other army, takes all these possessions, all the momentum's on his side. He receives a blessing from the priest of God Most High. He really could have tried to just take the promised land by force. Uh, but he tried his way before, and that failed. And he failed that test of faith. And here he encounters another test of faith, but this time he passes. He's effectively offered a kingdom, and he turns it down. In Hebrews chapter 11, we learn that Abram was looking forward to the eternal kingdom. He was looking forward to a better kingdom. True blessing that comes from knowing God, not in getting a bunch of worldly stuff. Jesus faced a similar temptation in the wilderness. Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth if he'll bow down to Satan. And Jesus responds that he's going to worship God and God alone. There were times that Abram failed the test, but Jesus never failed us. The last pointer I want us to look at for Jesus is actually in the person of Melchizedek. So when Abraham returns from battle, the king of Sodom comes out to meet him. And there's another guy who seemingly shows up out of the blue. The king of Salem, which is later Jerusalem, named Melchizedek. And in addition to being the king of Salem, Melchizedek is also a priest of God Most High. This should immediately jump out to us and make us think Jesus. No one else in the Bible besides Melchizedek and Jesus is ever referred to as a priest and a king. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 2 and 3 give us a little bit more detail about Melchizedek. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. 
he continues a priest forever. So we see in Melchizedek the resembling of the Son of God. So now that we've seen these things that point us to and prepare us for Jesus, I want us to see some responses of faith. How did Abram respond in faith and how can we respond in faith today? So first thing, we can go in faith wherever God sends us because he has gone before us. So I'm going to read verses 17 through 18 again. After he returned from the defeat of Kedarlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. In these verses, we see that God is working out his will in all places, at all times, even when we can't see it. That means that when God is enough for us, we can go in faith wherever he sends us because he has gone before us. If we look back at Melchizedek, he's a guy with no mention of genealogy, no mention of how he became a priest of God Most High. He's not even mentioned again in the Bible until Psalm 110 and then in the book of Hebrews. And yet very similar, similarly to how God had called Abram from among a family of moon worshipers, God had called Melchizedek out of a pagan group of people to be a priest for him. So right here in Genesis 14, we see that all along God had in intended to save the Gentiles too. It was never just about saving one group of people and them hoarding all the blessings to themselves. In chapter 12, the promise is that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram's family. It wasn't just a blessing for the Jewish people. God was already working to call non-Jews to himself, and he is still working today to call all people to himself. God is at work all around us even when we can't see it. He's at work in places long before we get there. This sovereign God who called Abram from moon worshipers and Melchizedek from a group of pagans to be a priest is today working to call all the nations to himself. So as we work locally, both local and global, we have great confidence that God is working to call the nations to himself. That's why we can say that as the kingdom of God advances and disciples are made in all domains of society, that Jesus is building his church. The second thing we see is that we are supposed to use all of our resources to bring righteousness and justice into our domains of society. Abram rallied all of his trained men who were in his household. He rallied the forces of his allies, the people that he had met where he had settled, and he goes to rescue Lot. Abram used all of the resources at his disposal for the cause of righteousness. At Three Rivers, we sum up the life of a disciple by calling it the radical life, which comes from being rooted in Christ. And we sum that up with three words, up, in, and out. Communion with God, community with each other, and collision with culture. So as we live this out, we have opportunities to engage our domains of society with righteousness and justice because Jesus is already there. Part of our role as we preach this good news is to be agents of healing. When Jesus sent out his disciples to preach, he said, preach the kingdom and heal what's broken. And that's why we engage in hard places. And we see God at work in those hard places. Locally, we see God at work in the foster care crisis in Floyd County. You can look at Restoration Rome. There's no other way to explain that other than the sovereign working of God long before any of the work ever started. Getting a building in that manner, seeing multiple faith-based organizations 
churches and government agencies so readily work together, that's only something God could pull off. And as our people engage globally in hard places, and as we continue to send people to engage in hard places around the world, they go and we send because we have confidence that God is already working there. The third thing that we see is that generosity is a sign of our satisfaction in Jesus, and greed is a sign that we're not satisfied in Jesus. Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek, a tithe of everything. He gave him a tenth of everything that he had. This is an act of worship to God, and it was a sign of faith and trust that God was enough and would provide him with all that he needed. Abram realized that as he waited for the promised blessing from God, he didn't have to cling to earthly possessions. Somebody needs to hear this today, that giving financially is part of our worship. We could do a whole series on giving and tithing and generosity and stewardship, but we have to realize that we're not the owners of anything. Instead, we're managers or stewards. That realization alone changes the way we view things. We will one day give account, give an account before the Lord of how we handled everything that we were given. Were we faithful? Did our handling of those things reveal that our ultimate treasure was found in Jesus? Or will it reveal that we cared more about the stuff than about Jesus? In the New Testament, we hear that the standard for giving is generosity with a cheerful heart. And this is more than our money. It's time, it's talent, it's treasure, it's everything that we've been entrusted with. We're expected to manage it well, to be gracious and to be generous in all things. In our radical life groups, we talk about the 59 one another statements in the New Testament. These verses give us clear evidence that our responsibility as believers is to care for, provide, and to love one another well. And it requires us to think outside of ourselves and to seek the good of others. A guy named Kent Hughes said, if we truly believe God's word, that will enlarge our souls, not just in generosity, not just in opening our hands, but in moving us to sacrifice for the welfare of others, to be like Jesus himself. And on the flip side, stinginess, greed, or fear of lack show that we don't really trust God. An unwillingness to give and be open-handed might be a sign that we worship something else. Do we value our stuff more than we value Jesus? Giving is an antidote to greed. Pastor Josh and I were talking earlier this week or last week, and he said this. He said, if your heart is set on God, you're open-handed. But if your heart is set on worldly standards, then you end up empty-handed. And just as God had blessed Abram in order for him to be a blessing to the whole world, everything that we have from God has been entrusted for us, not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of others as well. Even the spiritual gifts and talents that we have, have been given to us to be used to bless the whole body, not to be hoarded for ourselves. So Three Rivers, let me encourage you, be a generous people with everything that you have. And I want to commend you because in many ways you are a very generous people. So let's keep it up, but let's examine our lives to see if we can and should do more. The fourth thing we see is that lack of possessions does not equal lack of blessing from God. Lack of possessions does not equal lack of blessing from God. And we see that God is actually glorified in Abram when he rejects material possessions in exchange for the promised blessing of God. I'm going to read verses 21 through 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let them take their share. So after Melchizedek offers his blessing, the king of Sodom offers his version of a blessing. He offers Abram material things and worldly benefits. Melchizedek, on the other hand, offered a blessing from God. The king of Sodom offers a blessing from the world. In essence, the king of Sodom really didn't have anything to offer Abram. Abram, as the conqueror, had the right to all of it. It was his because he captured it all and brought it all back. But Abram knew that this was not from the Lord. He had the discernment that the king of Sodom would one day hold this over his head by saying, I made Abram rich. Abram basically tells the king of Sodom, thanks for the food. We had to eat it while we rescued you. Everybody else can take what they're entitled to, but I don't need any of the stuff that you have. God is the source of all true blessing. Dr. Alan Ross is a professor at Beeson Divinity School, and in his commentary on this chapter, he said, the realization that victory over the world and the promised blessings come from God enable us as believers to discern the dangers of accepting worldly benefits and to instead wait on the untarnished blessing from God. This brings me back to my opening statement from John Piper that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Worldly benefits, material possessions, they could be financial or they could be something else. It could be the idea that if I just had a spouse, everything would be great. Or if I just had kids, everything would be great. Having a spouse is indeed a blessing, but not having a spouse is not a sign of a lack of God's blessing in your life. You can be single and be blessed by the Lord and be mightily used by the Lord. Because blessing is found in knowing Christ. Having kids is similarly similarly a blessing, but not having kids does not equal a lack of blessing from God. Anything in our life that tempts us to think in this way leads us back to the question of when is Jesus going to be enough for you? When is Jesus going to be enough for me? We all wrestle, wrestle with the notion of asking the question, do I measure up? But we, most of the time, use the wrong standard. We think that if our lives would just work out in a certain way, if I made more money, if I had a bigger house, had a nicer car, had more friends, had a spouse, had the right number of kids, if I ate the right foods, if I do things a certain way, et cetera, et cetera, then I would experience God's blessing. And the whole time God is asking, am I not enough for you? The other false notion that arises here is the idea or the teaching that faithfulness to God will lead to material possessions or material blessing. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Material things in and of themselves are not a sign of God's blessing, nor are they a sign of lacking God's blessing. And lack of material things isn't a sign of lacking God's blessing, nor is it a sign of having God's blessing. Because the blessing isn't in the stuff. The blessing is in knowing God. Number five is to be satisfied in Jesus. Our ultimate blessing is found in knowing Christ. It's not found in the stuff that we have or any worldly benefit we receive. Melchizedek points us forward to Christ. Christ is our great high priest. He is the great high priest and king. This high priest, King Jesus, lived the perfect life that we couldn't. He died the death for sin that we deserved. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Jesus accomplished our redemption once and for all, and he's been highly exalted and given the name that's above every name. 
King Jesus sits on his throne today and is ruling well. Paul told the church at Philippi that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So be satisfied in Christ today. We have everything that we need in knowing him. And the last response of faith for us is to see that Abram worshiped the Lord in response to the blessing. He gave him a tenth of everything that he had. Abram offered the tithe following the blessing of the Lord. This is an act of worship, declaring that all he had been given was given to him by the Lord. When we studied the topic of worship earlier this year, we saw the pattern of worship being a living sacrifice in response to God's revelation and his word. This is something the Lord really wanted his people to grasp, and he really wants us to grasp today. Throughout Genesis, we've seen that pattern of God's blessing and people responding in worship. The Lord blesses Abel, he gives an offering. The Lord blesses Noah, he gets off the boat, and he offers a sacrifice in worship. The Lord appears to Abram in chapter 12, and he builds an altar and he worships. And here Abram is blessed by the Lord with victory in battle, and he responds in worship. Our response to God's revelation in his word is to be a living sacrifice all week long. And then when we come here and join together and sing songs of worship and praise, there's power and there's meaning. Psalm 147 starts with praise the Lord because a song of praise is fitting. Ben, if you'll go ahead and make your way up here. We're going to sing together in just a moment. Our actions reveal where our allegiance lies. Is Jesus enough for us? Or are we more worried about worldly things? Remember, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Our true blessing is found in knowing Christ. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship together. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Uh, Thank you that we have all that we need in knowing Christ. Um, That we can trust you to keep your word. That we can be satisfied in you. And that we don't have to cling to the things of this world. But we can rejoice in knowing that we have all we need in Christ. Pray that our lives would be living sacrifices all week long and that we would demonstrate faith in you by obeying your word. So we ask that you would be glorified in us and that we would be satisfied in you this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.